identified a problem with everything the devil could throw at them. In the very beginning, the Catholic the devil sick the Catholic Church, the devil sick the Anglican Church on the Baptists in this country and on the people of this country and on the American Revolution, on the Patriots, and tried everything they could do to stop the American Revolution and keep it a church state system with a king over it. England, Catholicism, Germany, all of these countries, they said a country should not be run by people. It should be run by a sovereign, a king. That's what God instituted. And this is wrong in America. This republic is wrong. This democracy is wrong. Well, it kind of proved itself right, didn't it, for a while, until we got this mess that we got today, anti-God group, anti-justice, anti-civilization. What we got in America today is running is an anti-civilization of of people that are telling us there is no right and wrong, that wrong is right and right is wrong. And that's what happened here in early America in 1800. And here we are 223 years later repeating it. On page 351, John T. Christians, The History of the Baptist. Formerly inventions, the convulsions in Europe threatened destruction to the morals of religion, scenes of devastation and bloodshed unexplained in the history of modern nations have convulsed the world. Our country is threatened with similar calamities. We perceive that pain and fearful apprehension in general dereliction of religious principles, the practice among our fellow citizens, and a visible and prevailing impiety and contempt for the laws and institutions of religion and abounding in infidelity in which cases many instances tend to atheism itself, the configuration and corruption of public morals have advanced with a progress proportionate to a declension in religion. The profaneness and pride and luxury in injustice, intemperance, and lewdness, from every species of debauchery, loose, the indulgences abound in our country. There is no question that throughout the country there was much dull preaching. Dull preaching. Extreme Calvinism had brought coldness and a decline in religious life. Coldness. When you believe that you're, you are born to be saved and born to go to God and you just are born to this and, and you... I remember there was a family radio and a propagator of that. He said, one day I just realized that I was the elect. I just realized I was the elect. When you think, know that you're the elect, then you just go on and just... You're the elect. You don't. You're not. You don't care about other people. Either you're elected of God or you're damned of God. So there's nothing you can do about it. You just go and you preach to the uh, the elect. That's it. You just preach to the elect. There was some warmth among the Methodists because that's emotional. 
you know, John Charles and John and Charles Wesley, when when they came over America and they established their circuit riding Methodist preachers over here and they went back to England, they got saved over there. When they established this religion, they didn't even know the Lord. They didn't even know the Lord until they went into a Baptist revival. Talking about real salvation. But they were, you know, the the Methodists came out of the Church of England, remember? Look at the Methodists, 1783. Yeah, where did it come from? The Church of England. What the whole idea was that they had a method of studying the Bible. Which brought their preaching in sharp contrast with other some others. At this time, Jesse Lee was their evangelist. He began preaching in North Carolina, but was especially drawn to New England. Dr. Joseph B. Clark, a congregational historian, describes him as follows. In his doctrinal teaching, Jesse Lee, the pioneer of Methodism in those parts, suited such were the Armenian teachers. Armenian tendencies. In his fervent style of address, he was acceptable to a warm, many warm-hearted Calvinists, uh, tired of dull preaching. The wild enthusiasm of the Quakers had long since disappeared, and their numbers were diminishing. The Quakers, you know, the Quakers and the Baptists were heavily persecuted in America, weren't they? Yeah. Remember, remember what they did to Baptists and, and Quakers? Yeah, they dumped them. They would they would dip them till they died. They they drowned them because the Baptists baptized by immersion. What else did they do to them so they would be marked? Oh, they would cut die. their ears off, yeah. cut their noses off, yeah. took their tongues, pulled them out with tongs, and, and ran hot rods through them, so they couldn't speak as well. The martyr spirit which animated the first generation of Baptists had subsided with the removal of their civil disabilities. And their religious zeal suffered a proportionate decline. If Jesse Lee had not come to Massachusetts, someone else pressed in spirit like Paul at Athens. You know, sometimes God uses different people. Adonair Judson and Luther Rice. You've heard of those names in history. Adonair Judson and Luther Rice were... Adonair Judson was a, was a well-educated man. And he was on a mission field going to the mission field in a, in a ship and the Baptists were there and he so he began to start studying the scriptures or translating the scriptures also because he was a... He was a what we got called a classical scholar. And he told his wife, he says, the Baptists are right. The Baptists are right. She said, well, you become a Baptist, maybe, but I won't. Well, the time they got to India over there, she started studying. She said, well, you know what? The Baptists are right. And he said, we don't have any baptism. So they sought baptism. Biblical education will change you. God sent this congregationalist to India because he needed a Baptist missionary there. And he changed him on the way. God called him. God called Ruth Rice. Ruth Rice did the same thing. He got he got converted. The truth converts you. If Jesse Lee had not come up into Massachusetts and someone else pressed in the spirit like Paul and Athens when they saw the city wholly given to idolatry, would have found utterance and would have had followers. 
These conditions affected every section of this country. The condition of New England is set forth by Lyman Beecher in 1795, 1795 on the extension of President Dwight to Yale College. Remember now, all colleges in America were seminaries. They taught the Bible. And then France, Germany, and England sent down the atheist into America. And it affected the colleges greatly in the people's minds. And we had a generation of infidels, like we do today. Infidel in the White House and the infidel all over the place up there, running and pulling strings. Before he came to the college, was in the most ungodly state. The college church was almost extinct. The college church was almost extinct. They had, you know, at West Point in Annapolis, they had church services every day. Most of the students were skeptical. And rowdies were plenty. <clears throat> Let's go back to a period of time later in the 1850s. There was a promising young uh, reprobate <laughs> by the name of George Armstrong Custer that went to West Point and broke every rule there was there. But they were in shortage of generals. We're coming up to the Civil War in America. And they let this scoundrel go out there and command troops. Now, supposedly he did some very valiant things, except that there was a problem. If you read one of the great generals in America history, General Crook, you'll find out the man was a piece of trash. He'd run into the battlefield after somebody won the battlefield and raise his sword. We did it! We did it! His whole idea was he wanted to become president of the United States. And his father-in-law was in Congress. They were up there. They were in Washington, D.C. And opened doors for the rascal. And then he went, after the Civil War... After he killed so many men, he had a lot of horses shot out from him, I'm sure. So did everybody else. Then he wanted, he was going to cure the Indian problem. He was going to go in there. Well, Crook sent him up in there into a, on, on the battlefield. George Armstrong Custer didn't follow orders. When he got to thinking about his wife, he would leave his troops and ride horses to death back to be with his wife or else some Cheyenne girl. Now that's treason. That is what we call uh, in, in the army what is that called? It's AWOL and then yeah. and you're, that is what? What is it called? You, you, you are brought before a court, a military court yeah. and you're court-martialed. He was court-martialed a few times. Killing men. Ex expecting from them nothing that he ever gave. He would not be obedient, but he, he expected absolute obedience to his orders and his commands, or he would kill you. He never did like that, but there, here we have this, this man, this thing. And he went up there, 
If he hadn't been killed at the Battle of Little Bighorn, and he got all his men killed too. He got them all killed. Because everybody was telling him, don't do it. And Crook told him not to do it. Don't you go in there. And what happened, they spread them then. They wanted to surround them. And he was supposed to go in there and surround them, not go in there and fight them. And he got his men killed. And his scouts were telling him all the time, you can't do this. This is going to be, but he had one thing in his mind. But I'll just tell you this one thing that history doesn't tell you about that either. A little boy by the name of White Bull, and one of my relatives way back yonder, killed George Armstrong Custer before he ever got to Custer's last stand. He was dead in Custer's last stand. They hauled him off on a horse. That little 12-year-old boy shot him and killed him as he was crossing the creek. And I think there was about 50 chiefs that wrote down and said that's what happened. But it was much later. White Bull. Let's go on here now. That was a little parenthetical statement. <clears throat> Before he came to the college was a most ungodly state. Infidels. Lack of lack of. Uh, what we call morality and lack of discipline. George Armstrong Kester had no discipline except for the men that he he wanted total discipline, but not himself. The college church was extinct. Most of the students were skeptical. Rowdies were plentiful. Wine and liquors were kept in many rooms. Intemperance, profanity, gambling, licentiousness were common. I hardly know how I escaped the boys that dressed flax in the barn as I used to do. Read Tom Paine and believed him, and I read and fought him all the way. I never had any propensity to infidelity, but most of the class before me were infidels and called each other Voltaire and D. Alibert, etc., the religious condition of Kentucky and Tennessee was particularly deplorable. Infidel clubs were organized and an evil influence extended far and wide. The character of the people were described as politically. They were violent and dogmatic. You know, one thing about these people, you look at Republican society today. They, they keep the law. They're supposed to. Aren't you supposed to obey the rules of the law? And the Democrats are out there breaking laws and, and destroying cities and burning and burning down courthouses and police stations and setting cars on fire and everything else. But that's right, you know. Because they have a they they have an inset that, that they've been in, in, dealt an injustice somehow or another. I'm going to tell you what, I'm American, they need 88.6% and my people were dealt more injustice in this country than anybody else ever more than blacks, Mexicans, anybody. And I don't go out and burn courthouses down. I may tell the truth about what happened, but I'm not going to go burn a courthouse down. I'm not going to go over there in Goldfield and burn the courthouse down and say, well, I'm doing this because you messed up my people. Well, they stole, they robbed the land, they did everything. This I can tell you the history of this country. But I told my people many times where I spoke before the American Indian, I said, you better hold on to this society because if if you didn't hold on to this one, you'd have communism down your throat and you wouldn't have any freedom at all. They were dogmatic. Now these people, when they're wrong, they scream the loudest, don't they? 
The wrong scream the loudest. They're dogmatic. Morally, they are corrupting, and in respect to religion, they are utterly infidel. The legislature dispensed with a chaplain, and the university was turned over to infidel management. Remember? How do you get into a society? You go in and you and you brainwash the children, the young people. The next, you brainwash the next generation. The autobiography of the famous pioneer preacher Peter Cartwright gives a lively picture of Kentucky society in 1793 as he remembered it in his old age says this. Logan County, where my father moved into, was called Rogues County. Rogues Harbor. Rogue, you know what a rogue is? That's an outlaw. That's an outlaw. Go down in Los Angeles and see if you can go drive on the freeway down there without getting run over from some outlaw. Go down there and with your Rolex watch on and walk across the street and see if they don't cut your arm off to get your watch. Go down there and, and park your car or whatever you want to do and they'll steal it or cut the catalytic converter off of it. And then if you happen to get in the car and don't know the rats underneath the car cutting your catalytic converter off, they'll try you for manslaughter when you run over the scoundrel. Rogue's Harbor. This is what's going on in our society today, and isn't this what's happening? Did it happen before? Yes. Here many refugees from all parts of the Union fled to escape punishment of justice. That's what Indian Territory was, remember? My, gra my great-great-grandfather was the first Indian marshal in Indian Territory. He was a real rooster cogbird, the real guy. His name was Samuel Eichert Paul. He was half Chickasaw Indian and half Scots. But because he was half Indian, he was a non-citizen. But he became the first American citizen. And boy, did his name scare the outlaws. You watch the movie True Grid or something like that. When they heard the names that Rooster Cogburn, but the real name was Sam Paul, when they heard that, they shook their boots. Justice. Outlaw society... You see, as things moved west, as things moved west, they pushed all the Indians into Indian territory, and then all the outlaws ran in there because the United States government didn't have any jurisdiction in Indian territory. Now, that's what's happening right here. One story of my grandfather. There was a man by the name of John Farrell killed a guy in Texas. Now, remember True Grit? You know, the guy killed the guy in Texas, run off there over his dog and all this kind of stuff. Part of the story is true. So he guns off and he runs into Paul's Valley, Oklahoma. And there is a deputy from uh, a sheriff's officer from Texas comes in there. And my grandfather was up on the roof of the house nailing down some shingles when he came up. And he said, I'm looking for Sam Paul. And he said, I'm Sam Paul. You found him. He said, well, we got a guy here. He's got woolly shaps. Remember? You know, the lucky Ned Pepper with the woolly shafts. This is all real stories, okay? It's just made up from different things. He said he's a, he's a tall Texan, and he wears a hat with a mustache, and uh, he, uh, he likes whiskey, but he killed a man down there in Texas. And he said, I can't come into, Texas, into the territory to get him, but you can. He said, okay. 
He said, well, we don't have any jail down here. He said, go down at my sister Sippy's place down there at uh, Hall Bend and get a room down there, and I'll send for you when I find him, and I'll find him. He said, well, he likes whiskey, and he said, well, I, he said, I, I provide whiskey for all the watering holes in this whole country. I'll just go for him. Well, he went here, and he went there, and he went here, and he went there. And I had a girlfriend one time, Fanny Briley, that he had a kid by. And she has this, the, this in, in True Grit it calls it, I think, the blue duck or something or other, green frog or something like that. They had a, a pool table and a restaurant and food and, and a whiskey in there. Well, that's the one that he started there, and he left it to Franny Briley and gave it to her new husband to marry her and raise his kid. Well, he did, went there last because he sure didn't want to go there at all. And when he went there, Fanny starts giving him the eye and everything. And he goes in there and they ask him if he's seen anybody of this description. And they say no. He said, well, I'll see you later. So he goes out there and gets on his horse and starts to leave. And he sees this guy of that description ring the bell, a brass bell. They ring this brass bell because somebody tells him, you ring this bell, they know that this guy is okay and he's wanting whiskey. So he rings the bell and he goes in there and says, Paul, let's go, Jake. Back in there in the place to go. And he goes in there in this place and he sets over a table and he orders a whiskey. And he's watching John Farrell with both eyes. And then Fanny says, Sam Paul, did you bring any whiskey for us? We're running low. And he said, no. He said, I didn't come here for that today. But he said, I'll bring you some soon. I'll send some or I'll bring some for you. John Farrell turns around from the bar. He walks over there and he sticks his hands out. And he said, Mr. Paul, this is good Kentucky whiskey. This is great stuff. This is bourbon. This isn't just moonshine. He said, I try to give it the best. He said, now, sir, you know my name, but I don't know yours. He said, my name is John Farrell out of Texas. And he puts his hand out there and Paul, Sam Paul pulls his pistol out and you're under arrest, Mr. Farrell. He said, why? He says, why? You're the bootlegger. He said, that's whiskey. He said, you're a murder man. He said, I got I to gotta make my country civilized. He said, I can't let every murder and outlaw come into this country. Just run around and turn my country upside down. He said, I got to arrest you, and they'll try you down at Fort Smith, Arkansas, and you'll get a good trial down there, and that's it. Come and go with me. We're going to go right now, and, and we're going to take you to my house because we don't have a jail. I'm going to put you up there. And so he took him there to his house, and he forgot that Sippy and a whole bunch of the family and they were all there with a great big dinner and they had this great big dinner table out there all long, 15 feet long, everybody sitting around there. And Sam Paul rides up in there and he goes out there and he pulls his pistol out and sets it on the table. He sets John Farrell down there and he says, family, he said, this is John Farrell. I had to arrest him today and he's going to be our guest tonight. And so they had fried chicken, they had corn on the cob and all this stuff and he sat there and and John Farrell said to him, he said, you know what? He said, you were real good Indians. You good Indians. And uh, he said, well, he said, I try to be civilized. We try to, you're arrested all right, but he said, we try to be kind to you while you're in our custody and provide for you. And he uh, simply asked him, Miss Farrell, why did my brother arrest you? He said, well, they say I killed a man down in Texas. He said, sure, you didn't do that. And he said, I shot him right there. And John 
Sam Paul said, well, he said, if you want to get rid of a man real fast, not any more trouble, that's what you do. He said, well, he said, I don't know why they, they arrested me, want me arrested at all. He was a bad man. He said, he's a good, good riddance. He said, I, I did a public service getting rid of that man. He said, Sam Paul said to him, he said, you know what, I do that all the time. And the jail arrest me and told me down to smart to Arkansas and try me for murder every time I have to kill somebody in the line of duty. He said, I understand all about that, Mr. Farrell. He said, my sympathies are with you. Well, after dinner, he goes up and uh, he goes up stairs and takes him up to the room upstairs. And he uh, walks in there with a lantern and on the floor are leg irons and chains. And Farrell says to Sam Paul, he said, what are you going to do with those? He said, I'm going to put them on you. You're my family's going to be saved while you're here. You ain't putting them on me. He said, I don't put them on you, I'll kill you. And about that time, he jumped out the window and he shot him and broke his leg. Come down there cussing him all the way down there. And he says to him, You ought to be in bed sleep up there in that feather bed, but you're down here dying, bleeding all over my front yard, and I'm going to have to go to Fort Smith, Arkansas for killing you. When he gets down there, he said, Oh, Mr. Paul, don't kill me. God, help me. Don't kill me. God, don't let me kill me. Don't, don't kill me, Mr. Paul. And he gets up there and he said, it's not between you and God or me and God. It's between me and you. And he pulled the trigger and shot him in the heart. And that's the end of it. And Jake says, he's a white man. He said he's outlaw. And he was resist and arrest. That's law and order, people. That's law and order. Now, that's a little aggressive, isn't it? I remember one time here in Fish Lake Valley, we had a deputy here by the name of Sandy Spicer. There was an outlaw come out of Las Vegas that killed several people on the way up here. And he got out there... And he went to Tonopala 120 miles an hour. 120 miles an hour through Tonopala. You know that little old city? 120 miles. Sandy Spicer took off after him. He got out there on that long curve and he's doing about 150 miles an hour or so. And he rolled his car. And Sandy got out there and restrained him. He threw him out of the car and Sandy stepped on his throat and restrained him until he quit moving. He was restrained. He said, there's no sense in wasting the people's money. <laughs> now, Sandy's dead and gone, so I can say that. Just like when, just like when John uh, told that uh, Peter chopped off a high priest's ear. That's justice and law and order. The character of the people were politically were violent, or dogmatic, morally. They were corrupting. Respect to religion, they were early infidels. And now this guy... Says this. At this juncture, when hope was already expired, an unlooked for and astounding change suddenly took place. Wouldn't it be nice if we had good judges and good lawyers today? Wouldn't that be a great change in this country? Locally on up? The event was a great revival. In 1800, so called for its wide extent and influence. The extraordinary excitement was called the revival of 1800 because its remarkable development concurred mostly at that date. Though its influence covered two 
or three years, the revival began in Virginia. That broke out almost simultaneously in many sections of this country. The movement originated among what was largely forwarded by the Presbyterians. In Kentucky, the excitement began in the Presbyterian congregation of Gaster River. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Presbyterians are cold people. They're cold congregations, okay? But something takes place among these Presbyterians unprecedented and really weird. They extended to the congregations at Muddy and Red Rivers in Logan County under the pastoral care of the Reverend James McGreedy. This James McGreedy was described as a son of thunder, monergist, both in manner and in matter, an uncompromising reprover of sin in every shape. The curses of the law were none their severity in falling from his lips, like Merabu, the fierceness of his invictness derived additional terror from the hideous of his uh, visage, the thunder of his tones. He had left a congregation in uh, Orange County, North Carolina, but a few months later, in consequence of the odium which his unsparing censors had drawn upon him from the ungodly, some of his former hearers having removed to Kentucky and forwarded him an invitation to become their pastor. He resolved to accept the call and act accordingly arrived in the fall of 1796, being now 33 years of age and full of fire and zeal. It was not long until the effects of his impassioned preaching were visible. Regenerations, repentance, and faith were his favorite topics. An anxious and general concern were awakened among his hearers in the subject of experimental religion. Your religion should cause an experience. It should change your life, which is nor It's true. The language of the sermons was lurid. The following extracts from his sermon in the character and history and the end of the fool will give some idea of his message. You know, I, I preached the, uh, the fool. Five messages on the fool one time in a revival when I was probably 22, 23 years old. I didn't hardly know how to preach, but people were being saved all over the place. I went and preached a little old sermon one time in a youth rally, and there were five people saved in that youth rally, and seven of them came for baptism. And I preached seven ducks in a muddy stream. That's the most really simplistic little sermon. That's all I knew how to do at that time. But God would bless it, whatever I did. And that's what's going on here now. Time would fail me to pursue the history of the fool through the middle life and on to old age. This is part of his message now. I must pass over a variety of occurrences in his life, how he obtained the victory over conscience, how the Holy Spirit gave him his last call, and when he was when he was resisted, he left him forever. How the Lord Jesus Christ sealed his heart under the same curse, so that all powers of heaven and earth could not open it. How he went on from sin to sin horridly, rapidly, till his cup was of wrath was full. 
to the brim and he was ripe for the hell and on these particulars I cannot dwell I would therefore hasten to the end and suffice it to say that he died in a curse of God and when his soul was separated from his body and the, and the black flaming vultures of hell began to encircle him on every side his conscious awoke and its long sleep and roared like 10,000 peals of thunder and then all the horrid crimes of his past life stared him in the face and all the glowing colors then the remembrance of misimproved sermons sacramental occasions flared like streams of forked lightning through his tortured soul. Then the reflection that he had slightly the mercy and the blood of the Son of God, he had slighted it. And that he had despised and rejected him was like a poisoned arrow piercing his heart. And when the fiends of hell dragged him into the infernal gulf, he roared and screamed and yelled like a devil. And when like the, the Indians and pagans and Mohammedans stood amazed and upbraided him falling like Lucifer from the meridian blaze of the gospel and the threshold of heaven sinking into the liquid boiling waves of hell and accursed sinners of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah and sprang to the right and to the left and made way for him to pass them and to fall lower and lower even to the deepest caverns of the flaming abyss here his conscience like never dying worm stings him and forever gnaws his soul and the slightest blood of the son of God communicates ten thousand hells in one now through this blazing flames of hell he sees the heaven he has lost that exceeding rest and eternal weight of glory he has sold for the devil's pottage and in those pure regions he sees his father and mother and his sisters and brothers and those persons who sat under the same means of grace with him and whom he derided as fools and fanatics and hypocrites. They are far beyond the impassable go. They shine brighter than the sun when shining to his strength and they walk the golden streets of the new Jerusalem. But he is lost and he is lost and he is damned forever. What a sermon, huh? Yeah, it is. That's like when I preached Luke, the 18th chapter. The rich man preaching a sermon from hell. Mm -hmm. Under such preaching as this, it is no wonder that men were stirred to the depths of their souls. Among the means adopted by this zealous pastor to awaken the flock was written a covenant binding all who who appended his sermons to observe a monthly fast a twilight concert of prayer and a sunrise concert that year of 1799 witnessed a renewal of the excitement but it reached its heights in 1800 and 1801. In the letter to a friend dated Logan County, Kentucky October 23, 1801 McGrady gives a narrative of the commencement of the progress of the revival in 1800. In the interest of historicity and accuracy Though a little long, the letter is here recorded as follows. Now before I read that, that's the next story. I'm going to tell you a little story. I had a friend, Darius Sherwood Madden. Dr. Madden was my bosom friend. 
and he'd just about do anything for me. We've traveled the world together. When we were going down into Italy on an airplane, we passed over Anzio Beach. He's right there is where I had to kill old Moxie Dumbo. His best friend went nuts. Went nuts. He lost his mind. And he had to stick a 45 underneath his chin and pull the trigger. Killed him. Stopped him at Anzio Beach. Anzio Beach. We weren't, went there. And I had him come and preach for me. There at the church I was pastoring. He came and preached for a week. He stayed in my house. Ate my dinner. And, and we fellowshiped. He came in there and when he preached the first message, he said this. This before he ever preached another word. He got up and he had a, he was six foot eight, great big monster of a guy. He said, if any of you out there are lost and going to hell, it's better you leave right now. Because after I preach this message, you're going to be two times the sons of hell than you were before if you reject it. I'll give you some time to leave now. Just go off and leave. And then he began to preach. People got saved. <laughs> People repented of their sins. They called upon the Lord to forgive them. They, they, they became better church members. That kind of preaching works. It really does. Because, you know, it's true. How many times can you reject the Word of God? How many times can you reject God and still have a chance to go to hell? to heaven and not hell. I've had people in their 90s saved. I had a, pe a man right here, a Roman Catholic, that hit the floor right there where you're sitting in Maryland and asked the Lord to save his soul mm -hmm. about three years ago. He never heard the gospel before, but once you've heard the gospel, then you're responsible to the gospel, aren't you? And that's what these people were doing. They were making people responsible for the gospel. Our Father, we send this message out. Let those hear and learn and abide by your word. Please use it wherever it goes in this world. These history lessons that we're learning that help us learn from them, not repeat history in the bad way, but repeat history in that which is positive. Father, please forgive me where I fail you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.